Thanks, Lisa. All right. <clears throat> I'm going to read from Acts 6 and 7. I'm going to skip around a little bit because it took me like nine minutes to read the passage last hour, and that was too long. So I'm going to start in—so uh, on, on the very top of 665, if you're reading a Pew Bible, this is chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Alexandria, of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom and spirit that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then secretly, they secretly persuaded some men who have to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they produced false witnesses, false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Now the first section he talks about Abraham and the history of Israel moving up until chapter, so I'm going to start in verse 17 on the next page. It's the little 17 on page 1. 1666. So he's talked about Abraham and a promise God gave Abraham, and then it says this, As the time drew near for God to fulfill his purpose to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. And then a new king who, to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites, and he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. And so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. And Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to re rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to get a closer look. And he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groanings and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? And he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
He led them out of Egypt and performed miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. And this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. And he was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and they turned their hearts back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make a God who will go before us for this fellow Moses who has led us out of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. And that was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf, and they brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. And this agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan. The idols you made to worship, therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made... As God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen And after receiving the tabernacle Our ancestors under Joshua Brought it with them as they took The land from the nations that God drove out before them And it remained in the land until the time of David Who enjoyed God's favor And asked that he might provide a dwelling place For the God of Jacob But it was Solomon who built a house for him However the Most High does not live in houses Made by human hands As the prophet says Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Then the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, and they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, and they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And when they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, I do not hold, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he'd said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Well, there it is. It's a fun line to end on, right? People hear things really differently. For people who are deeply Christian, have read the scriptures, have a more sacred view of the history of the church, we'll look at that. And this is one of the most precious moments in the history of the church, the first martyr. Stephen is referred to as the proto-martyr. The first person who was willing to witness faithfully to the point of death and to tell people the truth no matter what they would do to him with their power. Um, But I, I know that there are other people who read this and think, you know, this is exactly why I'm not religious. 
this kind of sort of like religious bigotry and fundamentalism. You've got two unbending people, and you've got one guy who just yells at a bunch of people and like denigrates their culture, and then the other people get so angry that they kill him. And this is exactly why, you know, we need less religion or something. And I think that that makes sense if you're not listening very carefully. Because what this passage is, is a trial. Um, This is how Stephen, if you read the text, this is how Stephen instigated this interaction. He was busy feeding starving widows and doing miracles, healing people from terrible suffering. And he was saying that it was Jesus that was empowering and motivating both those things. That's how he got himself in trouble. And then some people lied about him, dragged him off to court, and then he was forced to make his defense at trial. And this is his defense. And we're supposed to understand that from what Luke Luke says, because it says that after people yelled at him at how bad he was, people looked at him, and his face was like the face of an angel. They were like, I'm not really sure that you're telling the truth about this guy. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he said the time is going to come. He meant this for the whole history of the church. Times will come in all of the history of the church. He said, where people will kill you, and when they kill you, they will think they're doing me a favor. That is, not only would people who follow Jesus be persecuted, but we would be persecuted with religious fervor or irreligious fervor. That is, that people would think they were doing God a favor to silence or kill us, or that if they were atheists, they were doing the truth a favor to silence and kill us. And Jesus' claim is that we were supposed to behave like him, that we were to be faithful confessors of the truth. We were to speak the truth. And I, I don't like the phrase speaking the truth to power because my experience in modern American culture, at least, what that actually means is speaking power to power. That is, I'm going to go and get a populist group of people to yell at the people who are the establishment, and we're going to speak power to power, but we're going to call it speaking truth to power. Speaking truth to power always involves making an argument that is aimed at the conscience of the person in power. That's always what speaking truth to power really is. And that's what Stephen does. Stephen doesn't just say, you're evil. You should do what I want you to. He makes a very long an intricate and clear argument as to why he is, he is telling them the truth and why they will not listen. But the larger picture of his speaking and his death and his faithfulness just is meant to bring home one of the clearest points, which is just simply that confessing Jesus, declaring Jesus, is worth the fullest extent of our devotion whatever that is. However much devotion is required for us to faithfully confess Jesus is what faithfulness is. And for some people, that will be to the point of death. For other people, it'll be to the point of embarrassment. For other people, it'll be the point of moving to a different country, learning another language, knowing that their boss won't really like them as much as he likes other people, knowing that you might get a great deduction, knowing that whatever it is, it's different things for different people. But the point of Stephen's life isn't just that 
sharing Jesus is worth the fullest extent of our devotion, but specifically that sharing Jesus is worth the fullest extent of our devotion, specifically in relationship— sorry— specifically in relationship to um, the most resistant people. So Jesus, sharing Jesus is worth the full extent of our devotion, and it's also, even maybe especially, worth— Jesus worth sharing to people with the folks, to the most resistant people that there are. And the world has a lot of very resistant people to the message of the gospel. Um, there's, there's three, there's just a couple ways I want to look at this. One is that one of the reasons it's worth it is because the message itself stands up. Uh, the, fir the first issue is not what it accomplishes, it's what it is. The gospel is true. Jesus is the Savior. And no matter whether it is a genuine attack by somebody who has learned a lot of science and they've been taught that science is against religion, and so they feel like they're doing something fundamentally genuine by saying modern cosmology and evolutionary theory, so all that proves the Bible wrong, or modern socioethical theory says that the macroeconomics of the Old Testament is evil or whatever. Sometimes those arguments are fairly genuine. And then those arguments range all the way to the perfectly disingenuous attacking people personally because they don't like you because you believe in Jesus. There's a whole range. But no matter where you are on that range or that spectrum, you have to start fundamentally believing that the message is true. Because if that's not where you're coming from, it's about you. And that's not good. You have to believe it's not about you. It's actually about Jesus. And if you really deeply believe that, what you're going to find is, is that the gospel stands up. Um, one of the ways to make sense of the whole speech of Stephen is to ask, because a lot of people would hear that and go, man, he just kind of rambled. I mean, he didn't really defend himself. And at the very end, he like said something really mean to them and got himself killed. You got to start with asking your question, what were the accusations against him? What were the charges? And the charges were that he never st stopped speaking against the temple. That's what they mean by this holy place in those verses. And that he never stopped saying that we were going to abandon the traditions of Moses. That is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Their implications and the traditions that were built onto them. And so what he's doing is he's specifically refuting that that's what he's doing. But he's not only doing that. Because remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, the time is coming when the Holy Spirit is going to be with you, and you're going to be dragged before people of power. You're going to be dragged before governors, and you're going to be dragged before magistrates. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit is going to be with you, and you need to say whatever he tells you, because that's not just a moment of your defense. That is a moment to tell them about Jesus. And so what Stephen does is he doesn't just say that he's innocent of what he's being accused of. He says, actually, guys, not only am I innocent of what you're accusing me of, but you're guilty of what you're accusing me of. And that's the truth. And he argues it in a very truthful way. When he speaks truth to power, his argument for a Jewish hearer is very clear. And I want you to see it, because when you stand up and you profess Jesus, and it's not about you, and it's about the truth of Jesus, you are not speaking truth to power unless you are explaining the truth in a way that accesses their conscience and draws them freely to believe. Otherwise, you're trying to speak power to power. And here's his argument. 
he says, actually, you're saying that I'm speaking against Moses. He says, but what you find synonymous with Moses is all the customs and religious traditions that you've created around the law of Moses. But honoring somebody is to listen to them. Honoring somebody is to believe them. And what Moses said was that another prophet like him from among the Jewish people was going to come after him and change everything. That's what Moses said would happen. And then all the prophets said that was going to happen, and they described what it was going to be like, and then Jesus came, and he was that prophet. And so respecting Moses is accepting the prophet that he spoke about. And so I am accepting Moses and honoring Moses, and by rejecting Jesus, you're not. That's his argument. As he's going along, he quotes Deuteronomy 18.15, where he says, This is what Moses told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from among your own people. Now, what what he's saying is, that's from Deuteronomy 18. Everybody who's listening knows where that's from. And they know that this is the whole text. <clears throat> the nations you will dispossess. He's, this is God speaking to the Jewish people before they come into Israel. That you will dispossess, they practice sorcery and divination. But not you. The Lord has not permitted you to do so. So they're not going to use the occult. The way God is going to speak to his people is through a prophet. That's what he uses. Not a cult or magic, but a prophet that God appoints and speaks through. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses is saying, from among your own brothers. So the prophet will be Jewish, from among the Hebrews. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. And the Lord said to me, that's me, Moses, what they say is good. Meaning, when the Jews came out of Egypt and they were in the desert of Sinai and God appeared to them on the mountain of Mount Sinai and the people saw it, it was so terrifying that they said, we don't actually want to have a relationship with God like this. It was, to see God in his glory and his holiness, what he's really like in all of its fullness, was so deeply terrifying. They said, we want a relationship with God, but we want it mediated somehow. Because we cannot just fully be in this. And so God said, that's actually the wisest thing you've said since we left Egypt. And so Moses becomes the mediator of the relationship. And he brings them the covenant. And you get this first covenant, right? And then God says, that's how the new covenant is going to happen too. That another prophet like Moses is going to rise up from among the Jewish people. And you have to listen to him. Because remember, you wanted it this way. You wanted to set up the covenants And you didn't want the real, naked, full presence of God. So when God comes in the person of Jesus, he doesn't come in his full, raw, fiery, glorious power. He comes incarnate, enfleshed in the person of Jesus, right? And so he says, the Lord said to me, this is now Moses still talking, well, he says good, I will raise up for them, that is the whole Jewish nation, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command. And if anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I will call him to account. 
So in the word of Moses, as you get to the last book in the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells them what's going to come after the Torah. So the Torah is going to reign. That covenant is going to reign for a period of time. But there's going to be a time when that's going to end and God's going to raise up a second prophet. And that's it. Two prophets. And the second prophet is going to lay out the new covenant. And it's going to be different than the old one and different than the law of Moses. And, and they had better listen because if they don't listen and they stick with the old covenant, they will no longer be walking with God even if they walk according to what Moses gave them. Does that make sense? That's what he's telling them. And that's what Stephen is telling these Jewish leaders. He's like, guys, don't you remember what Moses said in the Torah about when these things would end? To honor Moses when this prophet comes, we have to stop doing what Moses told us to do or we're not following Moses. Right? The implicit argument is, I'm not disobeying Moses. You are. Right? The second one relates to the temple where he goes through this whole thing about like, God revealed himself in Moses, <clears throat> and then God stipulated that there should be a tabernacle. Now, do you remember the tabernacle? If you don't remember the tabernacle, the tabernacle was this big tent made of skins sewed together with like wooden poles, and it was these big curtains. It was, it was pretty cool, but it wasn't exactly like a big building or anything. And it was because it was mobile, because the Jewish people were moving around. They didn't have a homeland. And the, the tabernacle indwelled the people of God, meaning that they were supposed to, whenever they moved to a new place, they set up the tabernacle in the middle, and then there were 12 tribes. Three on one side, three on one side, three on one side, three on one side. And God lived in the midst of his people. You get the foreshadowing of a dwelling there? <clears throat> he said, only later did David say, I want to build a house for God, and then his son Solomon actually built it. The implicit argument is there, and there is, God actually never asked us to build a temple. He never actually told us we had to build one. It's not in the Torah. And there's no place to say, when you get to the promised land, then I don't want a tent anymore. Then I want a house. What happened is David built this enormous palace for himself. And then he would go out of his enormous palace and he would see God's tent. And he would go, he was like, yeah, that's not good enough. Because I, if I live in this and God dwells in that, you see the logic? And he said, I want to build a house. And then, so God's like, okay, your son can build one. And it's this amazing thing. But here's the point. What is the temple actually for? Right? I mean, there was this, there's this movement in like sort of among evangelical and, and charismatic Christians that you never refer to the church building as the church. Have you heard people correct people on this? So somebody says, we're going to go to, you know, I go to High Point Church. It's over there on Old Sock Road. And somebody goes, oh, no, it isn't. Right? No, it isn't. The church is the people. Right? They gather at Old Sock Road, but that's not the church. And are they right? Yes. They are. They're totally right. You still want to punch them, but they're totally right. <laughs> right? Because this isn't God's house in the literal sense. And there was a generation of Christians in America that before that, they wouldn't let kids run up on the stage because this was the altar and like, we don't want that, right? I get that. That's totally fine to be respectful towards God. But there was a sense that, like, the church was the house of God. Therefore, I can cuss out there, but not in here. I can be mean to people out there, but I'll be nice when I'm in here, because this is the house of God. No, no, no. Heaven is his throne, and earth is his footstool. Like, there is no, there is no place that isn't God's house. 
right? You might not like the way I talk up here sometimes. This is exactly the way I talk everywhere else because I am always in God's presence, okay? Now, the point is, is that Stephen is trying to help them remember that. The purpose of the temple isn't because it's the literal house of God. The temple is the place where we transact the sacrifices. That's where it is. The temple is the place where God meets those who bring the sacrifices of enjoyment of God's presence, the thank offering and the peace offering, or who make atonement for their sins. It's where the transaction of the sacrifices are. That's why the temple's important. He's like, he's like, we actually have not been super stellar on the whole sacrifice thing. We act like we respect the temple so much, but we don't actually live in the purpose of the temple itself. And that's where he makes this argument where he quotes Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66 comes at the very end of this very long book of the Bible. It's one of the longest, second longest maybe, Psalms. Isaiah? In chapter 66, right at the very end, there have been a number of chapters talking about the new covenant, the future relationship with God that was to come. And in the last chapter, God says some very provocative things about temples and people and how he's going to save. And and Stephen only quotes the first couple of verses, but I guarantee you all the teachers of the law that were there Apparently inside the temple because they were saying this holy place. I guarantee you they all knew this passage by heart And this is what it says This is what the Lord says Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool Where is the house you will build for me and where will my resting place be has not my hands made all these things? And so they came into being declares the Lord so that what's God saying there? He's saying yeah, you can't actually build me a house I'm a little I'm a little big your architecture is going to be a little bit, right? It'd be kind of like, I'm going to buy you this Barbie house, and you're going to really like it. And you're like, I can't put my dog in there, you know? And so he's he's just saying, I understand that when you build a temple, you see that as the house of God. And on one level, that makes sense, but do not fall into that. And then he says this in relationship to those verses. This is the one I will esteem, or an older translation was, and I think actually a better one, this is the one to whom I will look, because it's in contrast to the fact we can't build a house for him. Right? He says, he's saying, you can't build a house that can contain me. Where is my dwelling place going to be? And then he says, this is the one to whom I will look. So you may look to build God some kind of building, but he says, this is the one to whom I will look implicitly for my dwelling place. The one I esteem is he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So somebody who has faith, but not faith in the silly sense, faith in the fear of God, I actually believe that he is king and lord sense. That's who God is actually looking to to make his home. And then you're like, but wait a second. The sacrificial system interacts with the temple. Well, he's get, God is getting to that. And now, Stephen doesn't actually quote these verses, but everybody knows this is the next line. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a man. Now think about that for a minute. You're, you're one of the Jewish people. God, expl- in the first page of the book of Leviticus, the third book in the, in the books of Moses, 
God explains exactly how you're supposed to kill, skin, burn, use, cook the bulls that you're going to offer sacrifices. I mean, it's like four pages. Sacrificing a bull is like the most fundamental sacrifice of like the entire sacrificial system. It, I mean, like, it, it, God explicitly commanded that it be done at certain intervals, when we did certain sins, all these sorts of things. It is, it literally, you cannot follow God in the Torah without doing that. And now he says, there's a moment at which he's not, you can't build a house for me. I'm going to look to the one who has faith, and anybody who sacrifices a bull is like somebody who murders a human being. Do you see the cataclysmic change there? It gets worse. And whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering will be like who presents pig's blood. So dogs and pigs were considered massively unclean animals. So, yeah, that's, it's pretty nasty. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and their souls delight in their abominations. You see what he's saying? He's saying there's this time coming in which to persist in the sacrifices of the law of Moses in the temple will actually be idolatry. It will no longer be the worship of the real God. It, if you stick with it and you don't transition to the prophet that was to come, what remains ends up being idolatry against that God such that he's saying, I didn't choose it. Now at that point, it will be your choice. It will be a God that you have constructed for yourselves. Right? That's pretty scary. And then he says this, So I will also choose harsh treatment for them and will bring upon them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered, and when I spoke, no one listened. Did you catch that from Deuteronomy? In Deuteronomy, he explicitly said, through this prophet, he would speak. And he said, when I speak through the prophet, you had better listen. And then right here, all of this hundreds of years before Christ was ever born. He says, when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. Because this is what they did. They stuck with the sacrificial system longer than they were supposed to. They didn't follow the Savior. And then he says, they did evil in my sight and chose what displeased me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. That is, those he would dwell with from verse 2. Your brothers, you catch that? So the people who he is esteeming, he's looking to to be his dwelling place. He says, your brothers— who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. The sound of the Lord repaying his enemies for all they deserve. So you see what he says in this? He says, when the new covenant comes, and when the old sacrificial system becomes obsolete, and when God's dwelling place is with people who will trust him rather than any kind of building, when the sacrificial system itself becomes an abomination and to follow, continue to follow becomes idolatry, in that day, those who will believe will be persecuted by their brothers. And ultimately, he said, I will ultimately come and destroy the temple itself. That's what Stephen is telling them, and he doesn't quote the whole thing because it would be a—it would probably make them kill him right then. But he, he reads the first couple of verses, and they know the rest of the song. And so what he's saying is, you are saying—they've accused him of desecrating and speaking against the holy temple. That's what they accused him of. And you see what he's arguing? He's saying, no, no, I'm actually the only one who respects it. 
in this room. It actually gets worse than that. Because he says, this actually agrees with the prophet when he said, did you ever bring me sacrifices in the desert of Mount Sinai, O Israel? Now that is a quotation from the book of Amos, eight centuries before Christ. The verses just before that, if you, if you look and you go back to Amos, actually says, talks about how they have always been engaging in idolatries. What he's arguing from that verse is this. Not only are they rejecting Jesus right now, but that as a nation, they had never accepted God. Their whole history. You see, when most of us read the story of Moses, when he kills the Egyptian, most of us think that he was like this impetuous, like young Moses, and he like did the wrong thing, and then he ran away, and then God dealt with him for 40 years in the desert, and then he became this like mature 80-year-old, and then he was ready to go back and lead God's people, and then God's people accepted him and led them out of Egypt. That's not how Stephen interprets that passage. What Stephen said is this. He said, when Moses killed the Egyptian to defend the Hebrew that he was oppressing, he believed that that was the moment where God was raising up him as the Savior for the people Israel, and that the Egyptian, when he rejected Moses, stood for Israel rejecting Moses as Savior the first time. <clears throat> so that when he returns at age 80, they've already rejected him once. He expli Stephen explicitly says that twice. And then he says, through God's miracles, you actually followed him out of Egypt, <clears throat> only to reject him again in the desert. <clears throat> and to build an idol for yourself. And then Amos says that God is saying, did, did you ever actually engage with the sacrificial system in a racial— did you ever do that? And what he's saying is—and he says, and now I'm going to send you into exile beyond Babylon. What he's saying is, from the first moment at Sinai, all the way— to the exile and the captivity, the whole history of the Jewish nation in their own land, God's chosen people. He's saying, we never followed God, ever. You say you respect the temple. We don't respect the temple. The temple is about the sacrifices. The temple is about repentance. The, the, the temple is about believing what God told us, repenting, receiving forgiveness, following his ways, obeying his commands, living out what he told us to be. We have never, ever, 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 ever done that. And then he says on top of it, it was all your granddaddies that killed the prophets. Right? Now, that may not sound that offensive. It might sound offensive. But it's a little bit—the closest thing I can think of is when American white people sort of imagine that their great-great-great-grandfathers were abolitionists and they didn't hold slaves. Right? Doesn't everybody kind of sort of like, just, surely that was true of my great-great-great-great-grandfather, right? Like, like surely, surely we were the first abolitionists, Right? Like, I have an ancestor who, like, came over on the Mayflower. So, like, my dad's line has been here a while. I have no idea what they did. I know by the 1840s they were abolitionists, but there was a lot of time between 1640 and then. That's what he's saying. He's saying everybody wants to believe they're the ones that believe the prophets. They're the ones that follow the truth. He's like, no, you didn't. Like, when they were supposed to go into the land, the only two people who wanted to go into the land were Joshua and Caleb, and none of them were from the tribe of Levi. 
which is the tribe of the priests. So did any of the priests, great, 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 great grandfathers at that crucial moment believe God? No, not one of them did. It is an empirical biblical fact if you believe Moses, which they all claim to. He's saying, listen, Moses told us your parents didn't believe him and didn't believe God. And then we've killed all the prophets all the way along, every one of them. And now you killed the prophet, the holy righteous one, the savior, the God-man. We have always resisted the Holy Spirit. At every turn, at every moment, in every place, our people have always said no to God. And in the Bible, the Jews just stand for typical humanity. You see, we as Christians read this story, and we want to identify with Stephen. And we are not Stephen. Maybe later you can be Stephen. But the person we should identify with first is these leaders. Resistant, angry, unrelenting, unaccepting, believing that they're faithful, believing that they're good men, believing that they're clear thinkers, believing that their ancestors were noble people. That's us. That is you and me. We always resist the Holy Spirit. Will we ever stop? That seems like, will you ever stop resisting the Holy Spirit? It's so clear. It's right there. And it's only after that can we ever be ready to speak like Stephen and to be a faithful witness. To really give people what we believe that they need, which is to confess the truth and sometimes turning up the heat enough to actually accuse their stubbornness. Because sometimes when people are so stiff-necked, sometimes you have to say, you're being stubborn. Has anybody ever said that to you for your good? You're being stubborn, right? That's happened to me a few times. Not only can we be faithful confessors of the gospel to the most resistant people because the gospel's true and because we have to submit to it and we should love the risen Jesus. And not only because we have to declare it for the good of all people, even the most resistant, but the, but the last reason is just because the Holy Spirit does not accept our stubbornness. And the way it's demonstrated in this te text is that the second book of Acts ends with, in, go, yeah, go back to that one. It, to, it starts in 6-7, and it ends in 9-31. And in 9-31, Saul, the guy who was holding people's clothes, why was Saul holding people's clothes? Did, did you take the minute to mentally put that together? Why are they laying his clothes at his feet, and why is he holding anybody's clothes? Right? So that they wouldn't get Stephen's splattered blood and brain matter on their nice clothes. And they hadn't dressed that morning for a good killing. 
And Saul was like, yep, you're going to get blood everywhere. Yep, I'll, I'll hold your stuff until you're done. That guy. That guy who got papers to go to Damascus hundreds of miles away so he could find Christians and drag them off to jail. Chapter 931 ends with the same people who killed Stephen trying to kill him. Because Jesus had won him, had changed him, and Paul was doing in the same city the exact thing Stephen was doing, arguing with the Greco-Hebrew Jews. So they were like, we're going to kill you now. And he's like, oh. And then his buddies were like, dude, we need to just take you to Turkey. We're going to take you to, and they took him off to Tarsus. And from that, he ended up in the church in Antioch. And from that was launched the entire global missionary movement, which is why we are Christians today. I want you to hear four quick stories from some missionaries that have been serving us for decades. Some of, most of them were sent when Dick Sisson was the pastor here. Some years ago. And I want you to, each of them are going to tell a story about why you need to believe that the Holy Spirit will bring resistant people to himself, whether they're in predominantly Muslim lands that tend to be very resistant, whether they're from places like Sweden, where 80% of people self-identify as atheists and think they're way beyond Jesus, or whether they're the fun lovers at the UW. So the Sherbeks are going to come up first. The Sherbeks were missionaries for decades in the United Arab Emirates. When they arrived there, the country was, the statistic was 100% Muslim. There were no Bible and gospel-believing churches. And that was where they went. I'll let you tell the rest. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm Barbara and he's Carl. <laughs> We followed God's calling to leave our homeland to serve with the Evangelical Alliance Mission in the Trucial Omen States in January of 1966. We became part of a team operating a medical clinic in an oasis village 100 miles into the desert. Then in 1971, the Trucial Omen States became the United Arab Emirates. That's when Great Britain moved away. And we were assigned to live in the capital city of Abu Dhabi on the coast to represent Oasis Hospital and begin church planning efforts. When we first arrived on the field, evangelical witness was nearly non-existent. We found no evangelical churches. In fact, there were very few Christians in the country who could explain the gospel to a national. The national people were 100% Muslim and virtually no one envisioned today when international English-speaking churches and certainly no Arab-speaking churches would be part of the scene in major UAE cities as they are today. This change has happened, or maybe it'd be more correct to say it is happening, but it didn't happen overnight. Among the factors that our Lord used to bring about such a change were, first of all, the goodwill created by long-serving mission hospitals in the Arabian Gulf area. Secondly, the discovery and development of the country's huge oil resources and the resulting influx of foreign workers who today outnumber the nationals by 41. 
There's been no sweeping revival while we were there, but there are now dozens of officially recognized evangelical church gatherings in the UAE's major cities in English, in Arabic, in Chinese, and dozens of other languages. The government has granted land for church buildings and has granted more than 100 official man of religion visas to church pastors. In recent years, a major city in the UAE has granted the use of some hotel facilities for Christian worship. Just a few months ago, we were excited to receive an emailed photo of a groundbreaking gathering under a tent in the future location of a new evangelical church center to be constructed in the northernmost and most conservatively, most conservatively Islamic emirate of the seven states in the UAE. Looking back over nearly 50 years of our experience, we don't look that old, do we? <laughs> no, you don't look 50. <laughs> Looking back anyway, <clears throat> over the nearly 50 years of our experience, few people had anticipated any significant church growth in the UAE. <clears throat> but we have recognized that the Spirit of God is moving among thousands of people in the Middle East. Have you seen that? The Spirit of God is moving among thousands of people in the Middle East to establish His church in the perplexing situations of these troubled times. These troubled times are full of perplexing situations. It has been hugely rewarding for Barbara and me to watch and to participate in what God is doing. So we're thanking you today as High Point Church for your part in supporting us and our work during most of our missionary career. Thanks, sir. Oftentimes, people think of um, majority Muslim countries as some of the most resistant places. The Vosses have served for decades in Sweden, and Northern Europe is actually one of the most resistant places to the gospel, and so God has selected some of his most resistant sons and daughters previously <laughs> to go and serve there. And so... Stubborn people go to... Wait. Stubborn people go to stubborn Swedes, so here we are. You know who we are already. I don't even have to say much more. We can sit down. You'll get a chance to hear uh, Chris in a little bit if you come to the luncheon, so just a little plug uh, for uh, coming to the luncheon this afternoon. But uh, this story that I'm going to share has to do with what God did to move my stubborn heart from being a rejecter to one who confesses him. And it all started right here in uh, Madison at the University of Wisconsin. Um, Jim and Ann Green had just started the work of Campus Crusade, which is now known as Crew. And that first fall, he came to my fraternity house to explain how we could come into a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, I was skeptical. I thought that I had been there, done that, and it didn't work. 
And I had a lot of good uh, critical ammunition from my university training in experimental psychology. In fact, Jim still remembers me probably as, even to this day, one of, if not the most skeptical student he ever witnessed to. But Jim just kept confessing and loving me uh, over quite a long period of time. And I could not escape the quality of this man's life. Well, finally, he succeeded in getting me to agree to an independent analysis of the primary resource documents for the claims of Christ. And what's that? Well, that's the scriptures. So, as I uh, began to analyze the New Testament, God was pushing me ever more into the corner of this C.S. Lewis trichotomy on the identity of Christ. And I realized that Christ either had to be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord and God, but I didn't know which. And I struggled as I thought about making that decision. And the more I struggled, the less peace I experienced in my soul, in my heart. And it, it really got frustrating. And finally, in desperation, I just decided to make an experiment. And I said, uh, I prayed. And I said, God, if you're there, if, I'm, if there's anybody listening, and if this is true, what I'm reading about in the Bible, about who Christ is, then I want you to come into my life and change my life and forgive me, rescue me from my sin. Well, that, that's all God was waiting for. That, that, I still don't understand how, but that tiny bit of faith was enough. Within a week, my roommates were asking me why I was behaving so differently. See, I, I hadn't uttered a swear word in a week. And I was an NROTC midshipman and spent every summer out in the fleet with sailors and had developed quite an extensive oath vocabulary. And it just disappeared instantaneously and unconsciously. Didn't even know what happened until my roommates pointed it out. Well, within a month, my life was just radically transformed. I mean, I, I lost the desire to party and drink with my friends. And God gave me this incredible, voracious hunger for the word and a peace that filled my heart that I had never, ever, ever, ever known before. And I've been in a confessor ever since. But why? Because I'm such a great guy. I'm so perfect. Not a chance of that. If you even possibly consider that, all you'd have to do is <laughs> ask my dear, sweet, very, very, very patient wife, Kristen. <laughs> She'll tell you the truth. No. There's only been one perfect person in the world, and that's Jesus. And he sacrificed that perfect life so that we could escape the eternal consequences of our rejection and to give us a power to live a whole, a whole different kind of life. And that is incredible, incredible news. Um, the best news in the universe. In fact, it's too good, too good to keep to yourself. So God called Chris and me to one of the most atheistic countries in the world to speak to a people 
that considers the whole idea of God basically irrelevant. And I was almost there myself until Christ changed my life. So we want to thank you, High Point, for making it possible for us to share that most wonderful of confessions to the people of Sweden. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, John. Jim and Jackie Tanner have been at the UW for a few years. Um, yeah, and they're going to share one of their stories. Hello, High Point. Thank you for being our church home for so many years. And uh, I look out and see many of you who are visiting today. And uh, thank you for being here. Um, came here in 1978, and after a few years, um, the band director here at Madison asked if I'd be a volunteer marching instructor and a sidelines conductor for the uh, marching band here, which I did for 13 years, and then, but for a total of 17 years, including some years after I was no longer on the band staff, um, led a campus crusade uh, Bible study, uh, and uh, we called it Life Skills. We had as many as 60 people at one time involved in this, and uh, we discipled dozens of band members uh, throughout this whole period. And uh, one of those uh, band members that we discipled, or Jackie did, was a young lady by the name of Rebecca. When Life Skills leaders chose to have an overnight party at our house, someone invited Rebecca, who was a freshman in the band. As we got to know each other, I asked about her spiritual background. She was from Idaho, but she decided to come to UW-Madison because she thought it was going to be the least likely place she would ever hear about God. <laughs> um, she had grown up in, uh, not in a Christian home. Her mom had told her that Christians were deluded. And she thought that the Bible was a novel, a made-up book that someone just sat down and wrote. Well, I told her, actually, the Bible was 66 books written over 1,500 years in three major languages by 40 authors from a variety of backgrounds from king to fisherman. And also, it's supported by archaeological evidence, thousands of pieces of original manuscripts, and over 300 prophecies about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection um, that were fulfilled. And so in spite of her skepticism, we met weekly to study the Bible, although she had hundreds of questions, as we did. And she came to the band Bible study and observed um, the groups of people talking about the Bible. She began to see Jesus as unique, the Son of God, and that the people who talked about a personal relationship with Jesus were experiencing a peace and love that she desperately longed to have. Six months later, she placed her faith in Christ and devoured the Bible to learn all the stories that she had never learned, heard before. Little did she realize then that after graduating, God was going to place her in a secular job where she is able to talk about Jesus almost every day and pray with people who come to her with their problems. She's in a position in her growing Milwaukee church where she leads an 80-person team in charge of welcoming people who don't know anything about God, leading them to Christ and getting them involved in serving others. 
She said just a few weeks ago as we were together, I live to tell people how much God loves them, even in their brokenness, how he forgives their sin, and how they can begin to experience a wonderful relationship with him, which gives them new purpose to their lives. I love being able to explain the gospel to those who've never heard so that they can come out of the darkness into the light. And it's our pleasure to have Rebecca worshiping with us in the church service today. So thank you, Rebecca, for being here. She, wave your hand around. Okay, okay. Nate Mirza is our cleanup hitter. That's a baseball reference for those of you who don't know. And um, he's uh, done a lot of work with international students over the years, and we asked him to share a story. I'll just let him do it. It is such a wonderful honor and privilege to be here to this in this celebration. You all know that all the glory of what has happened goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. When he said, without me you can do nothing, he was not exaggerating. We have certainly experienced that, and I'm especially grateful for uh, friends who have come from outside of Madison. Appreciate you so much. And uh, I wish uh, in some ways that Kay was here beside me, but she's having a much better time in the presence of the Lord she loved and served so well, and I would not want to uh, deprive her of that joy. Just look forward to joining them. In the mid-1960s, by the way, I grew up in Iran, was educated in India, and came to know Jesus Christ as a college student in California when I was 17. So that's the background to this. In the mid-1960s, I was a seminary student in Beirut, Lebanon, along with an Iranian Christian man by the name of Mehdi Dibaj. I found myself judging him because he seemed like a very stubborn person. After the Islamic Revolution, some 14 years later, he was imprisoned for nine years, including two years of solitary confinement and torture. They repeatedly offered him release if only he would deny Jesus and return to Islam. And God used that stubborn streak in him to help him resist the offer to leave the prison. And I found myself greatly convicted of my attitude. God, because of worldwide pressure on the Iranian government, he was put on trial and released from prison in January 14, 1994. His defense before an Islamic revolutionary court in Iran included this, quoting him. They say, you were a Muslim and you have become a Christian. This is not so. For many years, I had no religion. After searching and studying, I accepted God's call and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to receive eternal life. People choose their religion, but Christians are chosen by Christ. He said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. <clears throat> he, 
He states that he chose us thousands of years ago, even before the creation of the universe, so that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we may be his. A Christian means one who belongs to Christ. Though he was released from prison following that trial, five months later he was murdered in a Tehran park. At his trial he said, they tell me return, but to whom shall I return from the arms of my God? Is it right to accept what people are saying instead of obeying the word of God? It is now 45 years that I am walking with God, the God of miracles, and his kindness upon me like a shadow. And I owe him much for his fatherly love and concern. I would rather have the whole world against me, but know that the Almighty God is with me. The life and testimony of this courageous brother is not the story of his own goodness or faithfulness. Jesus Christ is the main character of his story. The Spirit did the work of transforming his heart and strengthening him to be a witness no matter the cost. And as I've been listening twice to this message, one of the things that the Lord seems to be impressing me is how am I responding to people like ISIS? Am I saying to the Father, like Stephen did, don't hold this to their charge? Am I praying for my enemies? Should we be praying that God would raise up among ISIS a Saul of Tarsus or a Kamal of Kirkuk? Let's pray as the band comes. Father, we recognize that though Stephen was so bold as to say to, to these people, you're stiff-necked, you're stubborn, you won't follow God, you resist the Holy Spirit. This was the same person that when they killed him, he said with equal sincerity, God, do not hold this sin against them. And we pray that we would be the kind of people that could speak truth and love well with humility. And we do pray, not just for the thousands of people who have been affected by the invasions of ISIS, but we pray, we do, we pray for the soldiers and the workers and the leaders themselves. We pray that they would be seen by you like Saul of Tarsus, that whatever they have done, that you would, you would reach the most stubborn, the most upset, the most resistant heart. And we pray that you would supernaturally regenerate the conscience of some of the most resistant people in the whole world, even those with the most brutal hearts because we recognize that, that you claim all people from stubbornness. You claim all people from sin. And we pray that you do that, that you would raise up people that we've never heard of and that we will never meet to bring redemption to people everywhere, not least in Syria and Iraq. We pray in Jesus' name.